today on Young Nostalgia, we open our own speakeasy, but not for booze, more for music. Let's take a look. Welcome back to episode 67 of Young Nostalgia. Thank you guys so much for joining us. It always means the world when we have you return and enjoy history, as well as us bumbling through the stupid show notes that we make up and mostly take from Wikipedia. It's so good to be back. I'm Nolan, as always. <laughs> ben is beside me, and we are here live with the Herman's Hermits. We're going to about to record ourselves some music and distribute this stuff for our own profit. Ben, how you doing, big guy? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, little hint to the show, uh, all those bootleggers out there, uh, make sure, you know, we're going to be on the prowl for any bootleg performances of Young Nostalgia. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> something tells me I'm into something good. I need you to be my backup here, man. Something. Are we going back to so the thing I... where Nolan sings a song every week? <laughs> <laughs> back to our like old roots. But yeah. uh, oh no, man. <laughs> Episode 67 here for you guys. We're going to be talking all about the history of bootlegged music. Everything from vinyl to uh, CDs and then internet distribution. But it is going to be a two-parter. So today, we're only going to be talking about the history of kind of the background of bootleg music, um, the pre-1960s, the 1960s, the 1970s, and a little bit that kind of pertains to that uh, going on. And then next week, we'll talk about the 80s and then the 90s now with uh, the opening up of the wide world of cassettes, CD-ROMs, and in the internet <laughs> distribution. So that's what today's going to all be about. And uh, Ben, before we the, uh, hit the, the, wide hit the world hot of cassettes, mic button, that's what's got me. <laughs> Before we hit the hot button on our mics, Ben asked me what made me come up with this uh, show topic today. Uh, so get this, last night we were just kind of uh, watching, we subscribed to that new Spotify service where you get Hulu for free mm-hmm. and Showtime, but let me just say Showtime has absolute crap for movies and TV. It's just like, <laughs> no wonder it's free with the subscription, it's absolutely horrible with the No one's buying it anyway. Yeah, I know, right? Absolutely horrible. <laughs> but we did have Showtime and HBO at our Hotel 6 last week, which was kind of nice. Oh, nice. But now that we were like, okay, you know, I'm talking about, you know, how I made that joke, how we were recording in that Motel 6. Mm-hmm. It seemed like you actually thought that that was serious. Wait, Are you wait. making the connection? Oh. Remember? Never mind. Never oh, well, mind. Then, Remember no, no, last no. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. I got it. Well, I was just, I was like... Waiting till the end of your thought, and I was going to loop back around. I'm like, oh, did you like take like a business trip or something last week? Like oh. <laughs> you were in Motel 6? I get it. No. I get it. Okay. <laughs> right over my okay. head. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> like, yeah, I say the joke, and he's like, oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> but how I came up with this idea is that we were chilling um, and trying to find something on Hulu. And but right before a movie started, uh, a ad came up for HP or something like that, Hewlett Packard laptops. Mm-hmm. And the song was super catchy. And I was like, I want to know what this is. So I looked it up and it was Tommy James and the Shondells. And it was, um, I think we're alone now. And I was like, okay, this is a bop. I like this. And then I Wikipedia them to find out, you know, kind of who they are and the background to them. And they have amazing songs, dude. They did the original Crimson and Clover, Hanky Panky. Mm-hmm. Like, 
I like them a lot. And then it turns out that they weren't actually like really that big. They were kind of known for all of their singles. I was like, okay, <laughs> interesting. And Hanky Panky was like their first big hit. And it actually turned out that they recorded Hanky Panky and tried to sell it on air, but it just didn't work. But then a DJ over in Pennsylvania got its hand got his hand on it and started playing at dance clubs. And then it started getting more airtime. And at that point. Uh, uh, Tommy James was contacted for that and Mm -hmm. found out while he was in Pennsylvania that they were using his recorded music for profit and distribution. And at that point, I was like, I think I know what we're going to talk about. The wide overarching idea of just bootleg music. And here we are. That's the story. (laughs) That's perfect. You know, I think I think that's the most backstory we've ever had behind a uh, a show topic. I know. Normally I know. it's us it's just great. sitting here in front of our laptop scratching our domes about what the heck we're going to talk about. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, honestly, I was up for a lost words. Like, honestly, I thought we were just going to sit here and just beef it out on what we would talk about. But uh, <laughs> bootleg music this week. Um, before we get started, Ben's been working on a small little side project at home restoring a old Volkswagen bug, a dune buggy that uh, mm-hmm. his grandpa had. And then my thought, my mind started rolling around, and I was driving around during the week. I was like, oh, you know, it would be fun to kind of do something. And uh, and then I saw a whole bunch of, like, those USPS mail cars. Oh. And I was like, what would it take to get your hand on one of those and then beef that baby up? I mean, put something in it that would just make it fall apart because those <laughs> things are, like, super cheap. You know what I mean? I but like, you never you never see people driving around repurposed USPS mail cars. Like, how awesome would that be? It would be awesome. And you know what? I'm I'm glad you brought that up because this has been a long term thing on my mind. I have wanted a, I wanted a, I've wanted a mail truck since I was a little kid. Oh, oh I, and, my god! And not necessarily, I've had a bunch of different visions in my brain. I've wanted one just to whirl around in, just for giggles, like leave it the way it is, whether it's clapped <laughs> out or not. Um, right. Or do what you're saying with it is just put something gigantic in it. You know, and twist the frame in half, <laughs> or yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've had a bunch of different visions, so I'm glad I'm not the only one in the world that that really Gosh. gets excited about mail trucks. I think it would be so much fun. Like turn it into a tiny little truck, or right. you know, just do something completely outrageous. Oh my god! You know, it would be the best event ever to hit like a county fair, a a demolition derby with only in a mail, mail truck. trucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I think uh, I think a whole bunch would, of mail trucks all over. Honestly, the place. they would probably stand up pretty well because you ever seen how mailmen drive those things? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it seems like they beat the snot out of them. I know, I know. <laughs> so they, but they probably never do get stuck well. in the snow. They never get stuck in the snow. You never see them struggling out there. It's kind of yeah, crazy. To well, me. you know what? I for whatever reason, I have no idea if there's some sort of uh, United States Postal Service uh, automotive shop that is in the area um, where I work or at home doesn't, I guess it doesn't really matter, but I see almost on a weekly basis on seven, I drive uh, 71 and 76 in Ohio uh, a lot. That's pretty much my normal route to work. And sometime in between there, I see a zillion trucks go by with either mail trucks on a trailer or tow trucks pulling mail trucks. That's never a good sign. No, well, I'm just saying, like, there's there's got to be some place that they're like refurbing them or something, oh, you know? 
Right. I'm going to have to follow them someday and see where they're actually going. Right. I mean, they have to get rid of those things sometime. It's kind of crazy. I want, I want to get my hands on one. Yeah. I think it'd be a blast. Gotta be like a government so. auction or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if your career is a mail person, when you retire, you get to keep your mail truck. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> Wouldn't it? They'd probably right. just ditch him Let's, immediately. Like, I got to get yeah, this piece, yeah. of trick, piece of crap out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into our show. Episode 67, all about bootlegged music. All right, so kind of a background of bootleg music. It's kind of an audio video recording of performance that is released not officially by the artist or under any legal authority like a record label or anything like that. Um, they can be copies and traded uh, and copied again among friends. Um, of the artists without financial exchange, but uh, you know the big thing that we think about with bootleggers is how they copy them and then sold recording recordings for profit. Sometimes by adding professionally quality sound engineering and packaging to the raw material itself. So these could kind of be unreleased tracks uh, from the artist itself in a record studio or something like that, and then somebody by themselves professionally. Rec- um, uh, engineers the audio so bootlegs usually consist of either unreleased studio recordings live performances or interviews with an unpredictable level of quality so it could be on one end of completely amazing quality or the other end of this sounds like you're uh, throwing a whole bunch of glass into a garbage bin and that was (laughs) so and that's and that's the bass drum Uh, so the concept of bootlegging... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, big guy. No, no. Continue. Continue. It wasn't worth it. Okay. All right. <laughs> wasn't worth it. <laughs> the concept of bootlegging had been established way before the 20th century, but reached new levels with the popularity of Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones and some of their um, work. So subsequent bootlegs became more sophisticated in packaging, particularly uh, with the trademark of quality label from the William Stout's cover artwork. So it kind of it kind of put a uh, symbol of, you know, this is official quality of bootleg rather than just who knows what I'm going to get. Um, and that kind of upped the ante and uh, popularity of bootlegging. Compact discs compact discs appeared uh, in the 1980s, which was obviously, you know, with the uh, rise of computers and uh, ROM um, writing, it was a lot easier to bootleg and copy music. And then the internet distribution became increasingly popular popular throughout the 90s. Man, I am just not talking very well today. Uh, changing technologies have affected every aspect of bootlegging throughout the years with streaming services uh, and then there was less demand for easier produced mediums and so on as well Um, just because of how easy it is to get hands on music with you know cheap subscriptions for music subscriptions and stuff uh, you know maybe cds and uh, vinyl Bootlegs are not as popular, although vinyl is coming back uh, with the whole vinyl upswing. So mm-hmm. the recording, trading, and sale of bootlegs continues to thrive, even as artists and record companies attempt to provide officially released alternatives to satisfy the demand. So this could be, uh, you know, like acoustic or studio versions uh, released in Spotify or something like that, or as well as like with the record store day releases. A lot of times you see unreleased uh, studio recordings. That were you know not as over-engineered as the final product, or songs that were recorded but then cut from the final album, then they make a brand new album with a limited release on Record Store Day. That kind of stuff is how you know the legal means of through the artists and the record labels are trying to stop the bootlegging. Right, and there, it's such a it's such a weird 
um, I don't know, I don't really want to call it a gray area, but it's such a difficult, uh, it's so difficult to combat this, you know? Absolutely. It's even, you know, even if you're only focused on the people who are doing this and trying to make a profit off of it, um, it's, it's got to be so hard to track down because keeping it out of stores, okay, that's one thing. But what about the people who are just out on the street, you know, selling either selling it on the street and they can just pack up and move on or people who are just selling it to their own friends? You know, right. I mean, it's, I just can't imagine, you know, where you'd even start when you're trying to, you know, stamp this out. Absolutely. You know, it kind of even goes back to we dab a little bit into some sort of like copyrights uh, conventions, but even like, you know, with the FBI official label, both on, you know, vinyl or CD-ROM cases or right before a movie plays, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of whole shock people into deterrence thing where it's like $250,000 possible fine, I feel like you'll get a lot more attention that way than kind of heading for individual people, um, which is kind of crazy. And, and the fact right. that they had to turn than that turn to that as well. So mm-hmm. I don't know, but I also but, uh, feel like the, the really the only people that that's keeping from from copy and stuff are other people who are not really not really into that much. It's not like they really plan on making a lot of money off of it. They're the people that are making a copy to give to their friend that really wants to see a movie or listen to the album or something like that. You know, right. The people who are doing this to like make a living, they know it's illegal. They know what could potentially (laughs) happen. They're going to see that copyright uh, warning and they're not going to care in the slightest. Right. Just kind of blow it off. Right. I just, I can't imagine it stops those guys. Right. Absolutely not. Um, so the most common type is live bootlegging or audience recording, which is created with the sound recording equipment smuggled into, let's say, a live concert or a movie or something like that. Um, a number of bootlegs originated with FM radio broadcasts as well um, of live or previously recorded music performances. So if you know a radio station is doing a live event or uh, you know just a brand new release song, people could capture that audio from that FM uh, stereo and. Uh, go from there as well mm-hmm. so uh with that we will be moving into history uh the pre-1960s and ben will take it away all right so kind of backing up a little bit we we got a little bit more into the uh we started talking a little bit later in the bootlegging industry a minute ago but kind of backing up a little bit a little bit talking pre 1960s. Uh, the concept of a bootleg record can be traced back to the days of William Shakespeare, uh, where unofficial transcripts of his plays were published. <clears throat> At that time, society was not particularly interested um, in who a particular author was, but the cult of authorship became established in the 19th century, resulting in the first. Bernie convention in 19 or excuse me 1886 to cover copyright um and so this is basically what this is talking about is people didn't really care who they just wanted to go for entertainment um right whether it's they go see a performance or they read a transcript or read a book they don't care who created it they just want it um 
which that's, you know, kind of, we'll talk about it a little bit later on. That's kind of contradictory of what we see now where it's people are into bootlegs because they're loyal to the creator. Um, uh-huh. But so we, we kind of see a, a, a shift in motive throughout the years. <clears throat> um, so still prior 1960s, film soundtracks were often bootlegged um, if the official release soundtrack had been re-recorded with a house orchestra there would be a demand for the original audio recording taken directly from the film. Which that's, I guess that's a little bit of what I was kind of talking about is people wanting the originality of, of the actual recording rather than a kind of a, a spruced up re-recording that was actually laid over the movie. Right. So something where it's like, you know, a movie is released, right? And then... They have a special performance for people to w- listen to that movie soundtrack live. They would rather just take it directly from the over-engineered, amazing-sounding movie soundtrack <laughs> than the live performance itself that they could right. release a CD on or something. So. Right. So, after we get into the 1960s, the first popular rock music bootleg resulted from Bob Dylan's activities between largely... Uh, disappearing from the public eye after his motorcycle accident in 1966 and the release of John Wesley Harding at the end of 1967. After a number of artists had hits with Dylan songs that he had not officially recorded and released himself, demand increased for the actual original recordings, uh, particularly when they started airing on local radios in L.A. Um Through varying contacts in the radio industry, a number of pioneering bootleggers managed to buy a reel-to-reel tape containing a selection of unreleased Dylan songs that were intended for distribution for music publishers and wondered if it would be possible to manufacture them on an LP. Excuse me. They managed to convince a local pressing plant... (laughs) To press between a thousand and two thousand copies, discreetly, of course, uh, paying right. in cash <laughs> and avoiding using real names or addresses. Uh, since the bootleggers cannot commercially print a sleeve due to it attracting too much attention from rec- uh, recording companies, the LP was issued in plain white cover with Great White Wonder rubber stamped on it. <laughs> well, uh, well it's just so crazy to me how do you think you're going to get the name out you know without it being so prominent like is it yeah. kind of just a word of mouth where it's like hey this is where i picked up this cool thing or like someone just walks into a record store and they're like i don't know what this is sure i'll take it finds out that it's actually unreleased dylan music and it's mm-hmm. like what that's got to be about how how what it was I, I i was kind of reading through this i was really impressed on how much work it took uh, to put all this together. I mean, how, how do you even set that up? You just walk right into a pressing plant, you know? Like, well, 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 check, check this out. The, like once we get into the seventies, you'll kind of see what happens with the pressing pr- uh, plants. Gotcha. 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 Um, gotcha. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, but you know, on the outside of this, not to steer away from the main topic, but how great of a business front would this be for a mobster? bootlegged vinyl man (laughs) yeah i mean there's we can see here there's obviously a huge demand for it you know that that would be crazy what an idea man if we were mobsters i think we would uh we'd get into this into this market right yeah and it's i see this as a kind of a double front 
I mean, obviously you're uh, bootlegging this music is not exactly the most legal thing to ever do. <laughs> um, but at the same time, especially at this time, it's kind of seen as, you know, illegal, but definitely not that bad. Right. <laughs> I guess is a good way right. of putting it. So you could have... Almost as, so you almost could have like a, the lines of... Oh. <laughs> no, <I'm> just, <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. You go. No. You go. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So almost it's like... It's almost like... <laughs> I'm going to kill you. I, I did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so it's almost like you could have a front for the illegal recording business, which could also be a front for something more illegal. So you could have them like stacked. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> You'd be under the cover of two different companies. One would be a little on the shady side, but you'd still right. be covering up your super illegal stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> Both in demand. Right. Okay, so what was so important? <laughs> no, it, it wasn't. It wasn't important. <laughs> we can go on. <laughs> okay, all of that. And like, no, nah, okay. You're, you're the best. <laughs> you're the best. <laughs> oh, my God. So subsequently, Dylan became one of the most popular artists to be bootlegged with numerous releases. <clears throat> when the Rolling Stones announced their 1969 American tour... Um, their first tour in the U.S. for several years. <clears throat> wow. Announced their 1969 American tour, their first tour in the U.S. for several years. An enterprising bootlegger known as Dub decided to record record some of their shows. Uh, he purchased a Sennheiser 805 shotgun microphone and a UR 4000 reel-to-reel tape recorder, specifically recording the performances, smuggling them into venues. Um, and just by the sound, that takes I don't, some skill, man. Yeah, you know, I'm not, I, I don't necessarily know exactly what that qu- equipment is, um, but I think I can tell just by looking at it that it's, it doesn't seem like the most small and streamlined equipment <laughs> ever. Well, I guess real right. or real. I mean, those those were not small, so yeah, I guess right there, yeah, that's but, big. <laughs> right. Well, back then, I guess you could probably carry a briefcase in, and nobody would really bat an eye. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> wait what's that guy setting up over there <laughs> in the middle of everybody just like this big crowd of people yeah. and this guy's like can you please move is that I gotta a mic set up boom reel to reel yeah the resulting bootleg uh liver than you'll ever be was released shortly before christmas 1969 mere weeks after the tour had finished and in January 1970, received a rave review in Rolling Stone, who described the sound quality as superb, full of presence, picking up drums, bass, both guitars, and vocals beautifully. It is the ultimate Rolling Stone album. Uh, That's the, crazy. It is crazy. That's amazing that he got such good quality out of that. I guess it was that right. Sennheiser 805. <laughs> yeah, we should probably pick ourselves up one of those. Yeah, maybe we should record on those. Yeah. <laughs> The dub ladle would then be used to find the trademark uh, to find the trademark of quality bootlegging label of brands. Absolutely crazy, and you know, like bootlegging at this point wasn't as big as we know it to be today. So when Rolling Stone hears this and the popularity of obviously the Rolling Stones themselves, but the magazine, the Rolling Stone, finds this bootleg copy and they're like, "This sounds great," they don't actually realize 
what's behind creating the music. Right. So it kind of kind of opens the doors a little bit. Mm-hmm. So cool. All right, moving on to the 1970s. Uh, during the 1970s, the bootleg industry in the United States expanded rapidly, rapidly, coinciding with the era of. Uh, stadium rock and arena rock vast numbers of recordings were issued for profit uh, by bootleg labels such as uh, corny phone and tmq with the large followings of rock artists created a lucrative market for the mass production of unofficial recordings on vinyl as it became evident that obviously um with the with the rock groups growing uh, people would want to buy their <laughs> buy their music. So, um, in addition, the huge crowds which turned up at many of the concerts actually made it effective um, for them to smuggle things in and policing to be hard. There's so many people, it'd be hard to try and catch these illegal um, recordings. And so, this is what brings up the multitude of recording uh, ways to record this music. Mm-hmm. So, that's how your quality ends up hugely diversified on the spectrum of quality so that's kind of you know you're kind of shooting blind when you're picking up a bootlegged album because who knows how good it's actually going to be it could be like almost studio quality or it could sound like it was recorded in a tape recorder in someone's pocket yeah right right (laughs) you hear munching on like a candy bar midway through the show (laughs) oh my god yes (laughs) slurping their drink but that's like at the end of the run out so (laughs) I love it. Like the entire side B of a record is just like. (laughs) That would be fantastic. It would. (laughs) Um, Affected musicians uh, in the live setting were uh, Led Zeppelin Zeppelin and Bruce Springsteen. Obviously a lot more artists, but those are the two uh, prominent names of the 70s. In Los Angeles, there were a number of record mastering and pressing plants that were not first in line. So check this out. This is about the pressing plants. So these plants were not first in line when it came to pressing records for mastering um, major uh, labels, uh, record releases. So usually only getting work when the larger plants were overloaded. These pressing plants were more than happy to generate income by actually pressing the bootlegged copies. So sometimes they simply hid the bootleg work when record company executives (laughs) would come around. So obviously, you know, these record executives are working with this plant, but obviously they're not, it's not their number one. So everyone would just like hide all of their current work under right. the tables or whatever in the cabinets so they wouldn't get caught. Um, and other seems, times... I, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead. That just seems like such a big operation and a lot of money out on the table for to potentially get busted for. Right. It, like, they must have been making enough money to make it worth it, though. Oh, so, yeah. Kind of crazy. You'd have but, to. Absolutely, yeah. If, you're, if, your boots, if your booty's on the line, man, you got to make sure you're, you're ready to, to take the fall and still have money to... To, to spare right that's hazard pay yeah right right <laughs> other times secrecy required labels to actually use fictitious names like for example the 1974 pink floyd bootleg called brain damage was released under the name the screaming abdabs uh, which was actually one of the band's early names before settling on pink floyd because of their ability to get records and covers pressed unquestioned by these pressing plants bootleggers were on were actually able to produce artwork and packaging with commercial labels would not actually issue themselves so mm-hmm. obviously these bootleggers are like sure as long as you pay me the money i'll do what you want me to do 
So that's kind of cool. Most notoriously was the 1962 recording of the Beatles at the Star Club in Hamburg, which was actually bootlegged in the 70s to be the Beatles versus the Third Reich. It is actually a parody on the early U.S. album entitled The Beatles versus the Four Seasons. And so these bootlegging plants would just print off the artwork and labels like this uh, for anybody that thought it was cool to name an album like that. So there we go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's crazy. You know, it's customers always right if they're putting their money down, then do whatever they want. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh! And kind of circling around to like the movie soundtracks. Check this out. Um, another major hit within the 1970s bootleg era was Elvis. Uh, Elvis's greatest hits, and they're actually recorded mainly from just a compage a compilation of movie soundtracks that he did so they would take one track from one movie and then change the reel out put a new movie in with one soundtrack and then make that into a pressing of vinyl Mm -hmm. but that's a lot of work to make a bootleg of elvis's greatest hits like imagine how many movies you have to go to fast forward or whatever find the part that you want with that mute with that song yeah and then stop it right when it's done that or unless uh i think i i might get a little bit into it here in uh, in the next section of the show, um, it, they could also be recorded uh, directly on set as well. Um, oh, because a there's was what we talked about before, where there's there's the actual live performance that was recorded um, at the time of the movie, and then there would also be like the produced audio that would be overlaid over the movie later on. So either one of those right. two could have been bootlegged. And used instead of actual audio from, you know, taken from the the movie. Oh, Um, I see what you're saying. So I guess there's three potential ways that you could get this audio. Either way, it's a ton of work still. Right. Um, But so that that doesn't seem like it would be that actually difficult to get the actual audio. It would just it would just be very time consuming chopping it all up. Right. Absolutely. Mm hmm. All right, on to our last topic before we end episode 67, the history of bootleg. <laughs> I'm trying to sound like, an, like a 1950s announcer for like some superhero TV show. How'd I do? <laughs> no, it was, you nailed it. Okay, thanks. Nailed it. Um, so, Sorry all that. Sorry all that. <laughs> Why does it always circle back around to SpongeBob? <laughs> Under what circumstance should SpongeBob ever come up in this show topic? <laughs> Um, so, uh, the last section of the show will kind of go over the official and semi-official releases of bootleg recordings. Record. (laughs) Thanks. Appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Record companies have described bootlegs as, quote, gray area live recordings, unquote, describing them as semi-condoned, uh, you still looking for audio over there? I hear you clicking around on no. the other side of the mic. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, research into bootleg consumers found that uh, a lot of them are committed fans of the artist. A study of Bruce Springsteen fans showed 80% felt some bootlegs were essential purchases despite owning every official release. Uh, Spring, Springsteen himself has said he understands why fans buy bootlegs but dislikes the market due to the lack of quality control and making profit over pleasing fans. Ah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of so, crazy, though. Right. I, I want to know how this uh, how this uh, 
not to get caught up on this, but mm. I think it's kind of funny that they uh, pulled Springsteen fans. Did yeah. they go into a concert and be like, hey, fill out this piece of paper. Hey, fill out this piece of paper. <laughs> or was yeah. it like a part, was it like a subsection of the U.S. census? If you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, how do you feel <laughs> about his bootleg music? Oh, my goodness. That would be pretty funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that poll worked. I, I really don't. Um, but it's but from that it's so Springsteen himself he doesn't necessarily I mean I think he would in general prefer that people weren't bootlegging his stuff um, but he also under you know he, he talks about why he understands why they do it and you know to an extent you know, even if he's not necessarily making funny off that re- making money off that recording it's still putting his name out there and it's still a representation of him he's just unhappy with uh, people being disgruntled over buying crappy recordings. Right, right. Like, you, like you're almost doing yourself a disservice by bootlegging it. Right. Uh, so moving on a little bit, Frank Zappa uh, also hated bootlegs and wished to control his own recordings. Uh, so he created the Beat the Boots box sets, each containing eight LPs that were direct copies of existing bootlegs. Um and then furthering that, he set up hotlines for fan to report bootlegs um, and was notably frustrated that the FBI were not interested in looking into any of these bootlegs or prosecuting for that matter. Crazy. Yeah. And so that was kind of on the other side of the spectrum where Springsteen was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, Frank Zappa was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's um, kind of cool that he did box sets, though. It's right. Well, neat. his thought process was take the highest quality of all the bootlegs, copy it, sell it for yourself. Now you're making your money off of uh, those bootlegs, and B, you're driving down the market for the actual legal ones. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good idea. Makes sense. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so another uh, very notable. Uh, band in the bootleg scene uh the grateful the grateful dead uh they were very well known for tolerating taping of their live shows um they were unique among bands in that their live shows tended to not be pressed and packaged as lps but remained in tape form to be shared between tapers um there was a demand from fans to hear the improvisations that resulted from each show and the concept of taping shows appealed to the band's general community ethos. So this kind of stems from, they didn't, they kind of had a different viewpoint on their actual commercial recordings and their live shows. So they, obviously their commercial recordings were all high quality produced um, and designed for high quality money making and their shows were more or less entertainment and if people paid to enter the show they really didn't care what they did with uh, their experience whether they just watched the show and went home or they recorded it and listened to it later or passed around the friends they didn't care because it, that's what that's they kind of looked at their shows as you know just an opportunity to provide entertainment Right, which is kind of a cool concept because imagine how that even drives down the demand as well because Mm -hmm. obviously people can do whatever they want to with their music and kind of be creative with it and share it in a creative way rather than a profit way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
there's going to be a lot more of a multitude of these taped recordings of the Grateful Dead live because it's not frowned upon. But with bootlegging stuff, it's one frowned upon. And so if you want a high quality thing, you're going to pay the price for it. While here, if you want a high quality thing, either you can make it yourself or go to a guy that does it all the time and has plenty to give. So right. well, I it's mean, kind that's, of neat. That's part of, that's part of the price a bootlegger would charge somebody for the audio it's i mean you're paying them for the risk they have to take to go bootleg something right now if there wasn't if there was little to no risk at all then obviously the market would be almost flat you know for being able to charge for those copies unless they're like super super high quality you know someone went in there with like actual recording equipment then i guess they still could but when the market's so flooded then it's just not worth it Right. I've got our new music platform. It's going to be called 3D Music. Literally, the music is 3D. <laughs> I'm not even sure how that would work. <laughs> no glasses required. Uh, <laughs> the group were strongly... <laughs> Just moves on. Why no did <laughs> I'm just giving you. The, I'm giving you crap. Go ahead. The group were strongly opposed to commercial bootlegging and <laughs> uh, police stores that sold them. Uh, while the saturation of tapes of tapes among fans suppressed most of the demand for the product. So that's kind of what we were talking well, about that. a minute ago. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. We're just that good. <laughs> Nailed it. Practically, we are Wikipedia. <laughs> in, in 1985. Uh, the Dead, after years of tolerance, officially endorsed live taping of their shows and set up dedicated areas that believed gave the best sound recording quality. Which, Sweet. That's like on a next level there. I mean, it's it like, is. hey, it if is. you're planning on recording the show, we need you to go into this taped off area because I think you're going to get the best quality. <laughs> right. <laughs> that just reserved reserved for tapers like right, what? Right. That just kind of blows my mind. <clears throat> um other bands including Pearl Jam, Fish and the Dave Matthews band tolerate t- taping in a similar manner <clears throat> in a similar manner to the Grateful Dead. Um and this is of course providing no profit. Personal profit is involved. Um in the 21st century artists respond responded to the demand for recordings of live shows by experimenting with sales of authorized bootlegs made directly from the sound soundboard with a superior quality to an audience recording. Uh, so once again, we talked about all these guys, Metallica, Fish, Pearl Jam. Uh, they've all been regularly dis- distributing instant live bootlegs of their concerts, which, I mean, that's a fantastic way of, uh, you know, kind of beating the rush to, you know, for people to keeping people from taking in their own recording equipment because you're going to blow them out of the water on quality every any day of the week if you're pulling it directly from your own soundboard. Right, right. Um, which is, I mean, that's pretty genius. <laughs> um, in 2014, Springsteen announced that he would allow fans to purchase a USB stick um at the concerts which he would be which would be used to download a bootleg of the show <laughs> which i mean that's getting a little bit crazy um jeez according to a report in rolling stone many artists have now concluded that the volume of bootleg performances on youtube 
in particular is so large that it is counterproductive to actually enforce it, um, and they should use it as a marketing tool instead. Music lawyer Josh Greer has said most of the artists have kind of conceded to it. And I think we that's kind of circling back around to what we talked about in the beginning of, you know, how on earth are you possibly going to fight something like this when there's so many people doing it and they're so uh, anonymous in who's actually recording to an extent. Right. Um, Absolutely. So th- that's where it kind of circles back around to where, I mean, it's, you can't, it is, you're, it is extremely difficult to peruse YouTube and not come up on some sort of bootleg either, whether it's just the audio or video of a performance or anything, you know, right. Like you see people, right. Like you see people make like lyric videos or something like that, um, Mm -hmm. without being licensed. And it's just a common thing anymore. Like you were right. It's just kind of like, it's all over the place. Um, and it's almost rather, rather than, wasting the time and energy to try and take it down just kind of be like hey search for my song you'll find it anywhere and obviously if the uh, musician artist or band is like hey whatever you do search it find it more likely than not people are going to catch on and either one download it off of a streaming service or two buy the album in some form so i feel like in the end it's kind of helping them out because any more I feel like the sales of bootlegs aren't as profitable just because it's so easy to get your hands on music. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, I mean, there's very little personal profit in bootlegging that stuff anymore. It's mostly just just sharing it, you know? Right. It's like, hey, I got this. Right. Everybody else, feel free to use it. Um, and it would be... I, I mean, I'm sure these artists would prefer that it's not out there. I mean, you, you couldn't not prefer that it wasn't out there for free. Um but you just kind of have to get over it and make the best of it and might as well use it as publicity. Right. Right. Completely right. I love it. What a great way to end the show, man. Episode 67, all about the bootleg of music and the history of it. Uh, We were going to think about doing it about a two-parter. It ended up uh, tying up this show as a nice, neat bow, so we'll see if we want to revisit it and talk about the 80s, the 90s, and the streaming era as well, which we probably will, but it'll probably Mm -hmm. be a little bit short of an episode, which is absolutely okay. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us here at Young Nostalgia. As always, you probably can uh, mouth this along with me, as you know where to find us, Stitcher, (laughs) Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, uh, CastBox, Player FM, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your favorite podcasts or can hit that play button to listen to podcasts, we'll be there. Thank you guys so much. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star review. Scroll on down, hit that write a review button and say, I love these guys so much. They are the best. They make me smile. They make my week. Oh my God, I can't wait till the next one. That is what we want to hear. As (laughs) always, if... If you want to hear more of what you like, let us know. You can give us an email at youngnostalgiapod at gmail.com. That's youngnostalgiapod at gmail.com. Before we go, I wanted to make one special shout out. Joe, man, we want you on the show. We try to reach out and contact you via email as well as Twitter, but we don't know if you're still on Twitter. So please check out those uh, those messages and get back to us. We'd love to have you on within the coming weeks to talk about an interesting topic you want to join us for. Um, ben. Anything else, big guy? Uh, no, that was that was a really fun show. I think this was this is a topic we haven't necessarily really even done anything with in the past or even thought of, and it's kind of a kind of a new venture 
direction wise and I, I like it a lot um hopefully yeah. this show turns out pretty good there's not any hitch in the get along at all midway through the show because uh nope kind of screwed up and uh forgot to plug my laptop in before we recorded so <laughs> we'll be there's a pause in there somewhere uh types types into the google doc <laughs> we need to pause battery die <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was bad i thought i could make it i could not oh my but. god I love it so much. You crack me up, big guy. Oh, I love doing this. Best co-host there ever was. Uh, yeah. As we always say here on Young Nostalgia. Huh? Keep the bottles empty and the ashtrays full. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.